And when I'm not in a fight with someone, um, there's, you know, I'm, I, I don't feel like there's, I'm being threatened. And that's certainly part of shalom, but shalom is much uh, bigger than that as well. Uh, shalom is complete security, complete harmony, complete flourishing, prosperity. I mentioned that in our prayer earlier, that, that deacons would help work for the prosperity of our neighborhood. Shalom is prosperity when society becomes a loving community. Uh, I want to put up this definition of shalom from Neil Plantiga, who, if you, uh, you know, many have come to this church outside of our church's denomination, which is the Christian Reformed Church, but Neil Plantiga is actually a Christian Reformed Church scholar, and uh, this is just a, a very, very well-used definition of shalom today by many Christians, and it's this. Shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. Where there is shalom, there is justice, there is fulfillment, and there is delight. So what I would like to do is I'm going to read a story from the Gospel of Luke, which shows the teachings of Jesus particularly in this story. And I want to ask you, where do you see shalom in the story? And I'm going to ask you, where do you see it? And you can, you know, you can either think about that or you can answer out loud. Um, and then we'll go through some of the points. So the story is Luke chapter 10, verses 25. Actually, I want to back up to verse 23. So if you have your Bible... Look, look up Luke 10, uh, verses 23 through 37. Um, and you'll, you'll recognize this story if you've been to church a time or two. Starting in verse 23, Jesus says, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. He's talking to his disciples. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but they did not see it. They wanted to hear what you hear, but they did not hear it. They were blind. They were deaf with something very, towards something very important. Then on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by robbers. And they stripped him of his clothes, and they beat him, and they went away, and they left him half dead. Now, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side as well. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And the next day, because he was taking care of him, right? The next day, 
he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. All right, so if shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation, in justice, fulfillment, and delight. Where do you see shalom in that story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus told? What shows this webbing together? What shows concern for the other? What shows security or harmony flourishing? Yeah, there's, so he touched him, he picked him up. He, he didn't say, hey, get up, you old beat up man. He, he reached down and, and, and helped him. And just showing that, that kind of commonality. What else? He cared for him. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that. What kind of care? There's a, there's a special kind of care. Compassionate care. Compassionate care. And I'm going to give you another word um, for that compassionate care. Uh, in fact, let's get on to that right now. Um, so how, how do we see shalom? We see this. Point one, shalom is built on selfless compassion. The Samaritan took significant risks to help this man out. Um, there was physical risk because it was not uncommon for this to be kind of a, a, a setup. You know, one person acting like he had been beaten up and then someone goes to, to help and then the rest of the robbers pounce on the, the person doing the assisting. So he assumed some, some physical risk. He made himself a target. Um, there was financial risk. He wound up paying at least two denarii, and in that day, that would have been two days' worth of wages. So, you know, a decent chunk of money just initially. You know, take your daily wage, multiply it by two, and that's, in this instance, what uh, was initially given. But then he said, and I will pay more if more need is, is given to this fellow. I want to reimburse you, innkeeper, for any other expense there is. Um, we look at the story. What else do we see? We see that the, the man who helped, the Samaritan, stayed with him, at, at least it sounds like, for a day in the, you know, in the, the lodging um, to help him recover. And that would have delayed him. That might have, uh, there might have been an economic impact on him. Maybe he lost some, some wage in just doing that. Um, the Samaritan was likely weary from his travels. This happened um, near Jerusalem on the way to Jericho. Well, Samaria is a, a, a distance from uh, Jerusalem. The Samaritan may have been weary from his travels. 
and delayed from getting back home. I mean, there, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of ways that the Samaritan not just demonstrated compassion, but selfless, selfless compassion in this. Another thing that we see in this story about Shalom is Shalom, second point, Shalom resists boundaries. Um, It is not difficult to see how easily people construct boundaries. Sometimes physical boundaries, yes. But just emotional and mental boundaries where we size up. Mm, you're not part of my group. Mm, I don't align myself with you. We're, we think oppositely. Um, there's all these kind of boundaries that easily we construct today. And I think Shalom resists those boundaries. Um, so think back to the, the expert of the law. Ask Jesus, who's my neighbor? In other words, who really do I need to show kindness to? Where is the boundary, Jesus, the expert in the law is asking? Where's the boundary that I can stay within in terms of showing love for my neighbor? You know, you know help me... Um, Help me uh, get some limits, some healthy limits, Jesus. And so Jesus adds this little shocking twist to the story. It was a Samaritan that offered the assistance. And Samaritans and Jews, they were enemies. Uh, They were enemies in many different ways. They distrusted one another. Um, They looked down on one another. They thought of one another as greatly inferior. So not just, ah, oh, we see differently on these issues, but they were very contemptuous towards each other. I am, I am so in the right, and you are so in the wrong. That kind of attitude. Um, Jesus chooses one of the least people in the eyes of the Jews to show there are no boundaries when it comes to working towards shalom. So question for you to consider, where do you put up boundaries to who you'll show compassion to? Especially who you'll show selfless compassion to. You know, sometimes that boundary is people that, you know, are, you know, are like us, like-minded, um, people who will benefit us, that there's this mutual benefit, this, you know, symbiotic relationship. Um, in Luke chapter 14, uh, Jesus was at a, a dinner party, and he noticed um, one of the social dynamics going on at the party. They were all friends. They are all neighbors at this party, just, just uh, like-minded individuals. Um, and here's what Jesus said. When, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do... They may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Now, was Jesus really saying, hey, if you're throwing a party, don't invite anyone that you know? Don't invite your family, your friends? No, no, but realize that how easily we set up boundaries, and I want you to look beyond those boundaries. 
So he mentions people that we often overlook, the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind, the, the lame and the blind. Jesus calls into question our motives when doing something, when showing compassion. Remember, this is selfless compassion that's part of shalom. And Jesus calls into question our motives. He says, don't just show compassion. Don't just be nice so that you can, you know, you know that you'll be getting um, a mutual benefit in return. Are there people we resist showing compassion to? I imagine so. I mean, if you are a red-blooded human being, likely there is someone or someones that you think, oh, you know, they're people. God bless them. But they don't really deserve much compassion. People you would prefer to be on the other side of the boundary that you are not expected to cross. That's what we hope for. Um, so this parable that Jesus tells, it, it, you know, we gather what Jesus is asking us to do. Selfless compassion. Give selfless compassion shown to anyone, even an enemy. All right. Anyone want to say... Boy, I aced that. Give me an A in, in that course. Um, th- those are difficult things. How do we grow in our selfless compassion to others? So let, let's look at the context of um, this parable. I, I read a few verses beforehand to help get to the context of the story that Jesus tells. Verse 23, Jesus tells his disciples, blessed are the eyes that see what you see, because, for I tell you, that many prophets and kings wanted to see it, but they did not see it. They wanted to hear it, but they did not hear it. And what he's talking about is the good news of the kingdom of God. Many people are not seeing it, noticing. They're not receiving the good news of the kingdom of God. They may, you know, they may want to. They, if, they, if they really knew what it was like they would want to, but they're blind to it, Jesus is saying. Something is stopping them for seeing the good news, from seeing the good news of the kingdom of God. What is stopping them? What is blinding their eyes and plugging up their ears? To the good news of the kingdom of God. Notice... What is said of the expert of the law in verse 25? On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to do what? To test Jesus. He tested him. He was watching for Jesus to fail. That expert in the law knew, ooh, I am surely right, and that Jesus is surely wrong, and I'm going to prove it right here. He stood up to do it. You know, this kind of arrogant posture. I'm going to test you, Jesus. That is indicative of something in the teacher, the uh, expert in the law's life. What is it? Look at verse 29. Uh, It says that he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to justify himself. And so he said, who is my neighbor? He tried to justify himself before Jesus. He was trying to prove himself right. Instead of admitting that it is quite possible that he 
is not living up to God's command to love his neighbor as himself. So what is the enemy of pride? What is this trait that blinds us from seeing the good news of the kingdom of God? It's this. The enemy of shalom is it's pride, isn't it? Pride stops people from receiving the good news of God's kingdom. See, the news of God's kingdom is that God has come down into this world with the intent of putting everything that is wrong back to right, put everything in its right place as God intends it. Okay, what does that include? That includes putting our relationship with God back in its right place. Um, And it includes putting our hearts back together. God cleansing our hearts, making our hearts right. It includes putting our relationships with others back in the right place where there aren't classes and, and exclusive classes, exclusive groups, nations of people who take this privileged stance when others are devalued, lowered, suppressed. But instead, but instead, helping our hearts to be right so that we'll live in mutual love and support of other Christians. That's, that's challenging. It sounds kind of good, but it's challenging when part of God's kingdom is coming in and healing our hearts. So it's challenging because of the pride that can be in our own hearts. And so here's a statement for Christians. Here's what pride does. Pride tells you, this is not in your note sheet, you can... Write this down if you want. Pride tells you your relationship with God is something that you can manage and your relationship with others is something that you can ignore. Your relationship with God is something that I I can manage that. And my relationship with others, I can ignore that. So it tells you your relationship with God is something you can manage. Pride makes you think, okay, I'm, I'm pretty good. You know, I might not be Mother Teresa good, but I'm surely not Charlie, uh, Charles Manson bad. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm somewhere in between and probably a little closer to, to Mother Teresa than I am to Charles Manson. That's what pride does. It, it puts you in a position where you think you can kind of manage your relationship with God by your actions and somewhere being a little bit closer to Mother Teresa than just the scums of society. And you ration, you you reason, well, God knows that I'm pretty good, and that's enough. You try to justify yourself. You try to manage that relationship with God. And pride tells you your relationship with others is something that you can ignore. Um, I remember a a prideful moment of mine. It was some years ago. I was replacing a water heater um, that had gone out. And I, I didn't really know how heavy those water heaters are. They're, they're pretty heavy. But uh, that wasn't really a problem because just down the street, I had a, a pretty good friend, a neighbor, and he was really big. So this is going to be pretty easy. Well, the only problem is I didn't want to go ask my neighbor for help. So I'm like, I can do this by myself. And so I remember wrestling with this water heater, trying to get it out of its little cabinet and I knew I had about a foot and a half to get it to the ground. And I knew if I just dropped this sucker, 
there's going to be some damage around here. And so I, I mean, I, you know, I have some kind of a engineering background. I'm like, well, how can I, you know, get some tools in here? What can I get? Got my car ramps and stuck them underneath the, the water heater. So as I rustled it out, I could get on the, the ramps and kind of roll it down and in the hall and out into the garage. Um, and that, that took quite a while to do. Um, so next it was time to get the new water heater back in place. And there's no way that I could lift this water heater on my own. I barely got it down, but no problem. I got my neighbor just down the street, right? And he's pretty big, except that's not what I did. I decided I'm going to get this new water heater up all by myself. And so the next hour and a half was like comedy hour in my utility room. Um, as I tried everything from getting jump ropes and trying to use them to lift up the water heater, my car ramps, um, some two-by-fours. And the crazy thing is I actually did it <laughs> um, uh, without destroying anything. Um, but as I look back, it was complete and utter pride. Um, why, not, why not go get some help? Pride tells you my relationship with others is something that I can ignore. Um, I wanted to justify myself. I wanted to prove that I could do it. What pride does, and it's kind of a silly story about myself, right? Um, But here's what pride does. Is it tells you that you can unweave yourself from the webbing of shalom. I can unweave myself. Think of your, your life as a little strand in the weaving. I can just unweave myself from the shalom that God desires for the world. And I can just take everything on all by myself. So pride asks, what can I do for myself? And these two ideas, that my relationship with God is something that I can manage, and my relationship with others is something I can ignore, they're, they're really linked together. And let me say, you know, I ignored my friend. Is it easier to ignore your enemies than it is to ignore your friends? A lot easier, right? And these two ideas, of managing my relationship with God and ignoring my relationship with others, they're linked, and we see them linked throughout the Bible. I want to take you back to the Old Testament book, um, Zechariah where we see these two ideas linked together. Um, Zechariah chapter 7, verse 5, God is giving a message to the Israelites through the prophet Zechariah. God says, Ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, ah, were you not just feasting for yourselves? God said, all of your worship, you know, your fasting, your, your worship celebrations, your, your festivals, you were not doing it for me. You were doing it for yourselves. You were trying to manage this relationship with me through your devotion. They're saying, God, see how devoted we are, this fasting we're doing. Aren't you pleased with us, God? Look at, look at how, how, how good Israelites were being. And they try to manage that relationship with God. Now, listen to what God says next. In Zechariah, he says, Administ- instead, instead of doing that, 
God says, administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the foreigner, or the poor. Do not plot against each other. You cannot ignore this fabric that I'm putting you in, God is saying. Show true justice. Show mercy. Show compassion to one another. And then God shows just how extensive that fabric is because he says, and here's who I want you to make sure you're showing it to. The fatherless, the orphan, or the, the widow, the foreigner, and the poor. So here's another thing that we see about shalom. Shalom is built through fighting for the powerless. Shalom is built through fighting for the powerless. See, there are four categories of people in the Old Testament that God uh, told the Israelites to pay very special attention to. Widows, orphans, foreigners, and poor. Why did God single those groups out? Because those are the groups that had no power whatsoever. Those are the people that could not fight for themselves. They had no defense. To be one of those people in ancient times meant you had no structures for support. So what was justice? Justice, God said to the Israelites, is when you show mercy and compassion to them. That's what's just. To protect the powerless, to provide for those who can't provide for themselves, to make things right for them. And what the what God was showing to the Israelites, if you're trying to manage your relationship with me, there's no way that you're going to do a good job with your relationships with, with the others around you. So I hope we'll be able to take this parable and, and apply it in some concrete ways to showing compassion um, to others. You know, maybe it's by beginning to have a different attitude towards um, those who are underprivileged or overlooked around us because it's pretty pride. It, it's pretty easy to have, at least, I'm, and maybe I'm just thinking of myself and preaching as if it's pretty normal, but it's pretty easy for me to, you know, I, I can get an arrogant attitude sometimes and, and think that, you know, the way that I'm thinking life should be like, it's, you know, I'm the expert. You get a prideful attitude towards others. Um, Sometimes we see people in need and we assume, well, that's because of some some bad decision on their part. You know, they weren't working hard enough or trying hard enough. Maybe they made some bad decisions. It's kind of their own fault. You know, we think if, if we were in their shoes, boy, we would have been doing things a lot differently. It's very easy to to think that. Start passing judgment. But instead of seeing them as much different than we are, we should see them as people who are in need of help, just like we are all in need of help from God. So that's this one application of this. Um, another application, this is uh, Sanctity of Life Sunday. Um, a Sunday, I think we even have an insert in the bulletin on Sanctity of Life Sunday. It's, it's one Sunday during the church year. Uh, during the, the calendar, when churches um, say, you know, we want to, um, we want to make sure that we're remembering 
um, the rights of the unborn. And I, and I want to just connect, connect that back to God telling the Israelites, you need to watch out for the, the, the widows, the fatherless, the orphans, um, the foreigners and the poor, those people that have no power on their own, who are the, the most vulnerable. And friends, um, I, I can't think of a more vulnerable group than unborn children. I can't, think of, I can't think of a group of people that hold less power or ability to fight for themselves than unborn children. Maybe that's something that God wants to do in your hearts during, as we look at this, this parable. Just think, mm, I, want to, I want to be stretched in how I notice those who um, are in a vulnerable position around me. And I want to fight for him. I want to fight for him. So how do we get freed from the pride that keeps us from showing compassion, this selfless compassion? The key to shalom, God shows compassion first. This was Jesus' final message to the expert in the law. It's really interesting that Jesus had the Samaritan helping the beaten man and not the other way around. You see, without telling him otherwise, Jesus knows that the expert in the law is going to assume that the beaten man is Jewish. The Levite was Jewish. The priest was Jewish. They're coming from Jerusalem. Without Jesus giving any other details, the expert in the law is going to assume that the beaten up man was Jewish in Jesus' story. Now, Jesus could have had it the other way around. The Jewish man helping a Samaritan who was beaten up. And if Jesus had switched those details, wow, that would have been a perfect illustration of showing, you know, Jews, we are to show compassion to someone much different, even your enemy. But Jesus has it the other way around, where the Samaritan is the one offering the assistance and the Jewish man is the one beaten up. Why? Did he tell the story that way? Who did Jesus want the teacher of the law to identify with? The man who was beaten up. The man who was attacked. The man who was left near dead. The man who needed someone to come in and save him and show him mercy. And we're all that man, aren't we? Because we were the ones who needed someone to come in and rescue us. And Jesus saw you and he saw me. And we were dead in our sins. And though we were his enemies, Jesus was moved by compassion. And not only did Jesus risk his life stepping into a hostile world, but he gave his life. He died on the cross so that we could have life. Jesus took all the the bruises and the beatings so that we could be healed of our bruises and beatings. As Jesus who had received, as people who have received such compassion, we need to be showing that kind of compassion. So just kind of close. Before we pray, I want you to think, who will you show selfless compassion to? Think about your, your workplaces, your schools, your 
your environments that you're in. I want you to push yourself in noticing the vulnerable among you. Who are those? Who are the people who seem to be operating with the least amount of power? Who might be exploited? Um, who need somewhat? And, you know, if you're working in a small office, it may be a little harder to identify that if you're working in a, in a big office, maybe. What does it look like in your, in your street, your neighborhood? Who, who are the most vulnerable? How can you show compassion at your schools? Who are the most vulnerable? How can you show compassion? I want to give us all just um, a few seconds of silence um, for us to pray to the Lord and ask the Lord to you know, speak to us through His Spirit. Maybe reveal one way that we can show a greater selfless compassion. Let's pray. Father, we give you the silence just for you to be working on our hearts and working through your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us. How can we show compassion, Lord? Father, we pray that you would continue to work in our hearts. We know that we have received your compassion, that we have received your salvation, that when we were beaten up, when we were attacked, though we were your enemies, you came and you picked us up and you gave not just two days worth of wages, you gave your entire life, you gave every last drop of blood to heal us and to save us. And Father, we pray that you would now open up our eyes to how much you love us and then the opportunities that we have to show that that amazing love, uh, that giving love, that rescuing love with the people who are around us and work for your shalom. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.